we've been going through uh, different aspects of Sati and Satipatthana and tonight and tomorrow night we'll do a kind of review, overview um, having a look at looking, looking at the four Satipatthanas um, listed in Satipatthana Sutta um, body, <coughs> feeling, heart, mind and phenomena and just um, basically getting an overview of how the Buddha um, presents the whole project. So, first of all, we begin with sati, uh, which we've been talking about, usually translated mindfulness, literally meaning memory. Um, so, it refers to the quality of presence or remembering the present. Um, and we can get a sense of what the Buddha is getting at well we've been exploring it in terms of distraction uh, because uh, when the Buddha talks about the absence of mindfulness then we can recognise that in our experience of distraction so we can understand the meaning of presence by looking at our experience of absence and what it feels like so when are we not present uh, when we are distracted and how does distraction begin um, suddenly we forget so this, this forgetting is the opposite of mindfulness we forget the meditation object or we forget to meditate that they're the two, the two flavours um, we have forgotten what is present or we have forgotten to be present and then <clears throat> suddenly we remember so we enter into distraction and, th and the essence of distraction in this whole experience is that um, we don't know that we are distracted so the mind has slipped away from where we put it and we don't know that it's slipped away and so the the universal experience of distraction is I fall into it and I don't know that I've fallen into it. And that not knowing is distraction. Distraction is not the fact that, that um, um, attention has moved from one object to another. That's not distraction. The mind moves. That's what it does. Um, distraction is found in the movement of the mind when we don't know that the mind has moved we don't catch the movement itself and then we come out of that distraction at that moment that we know we are distracted as soon as I recognise oh I'm distracted that very recognition is memory I've suddenly remembered um, I've remembered what is present the distraction or I've remembered to be present um, and this, these two flavours are actually built into the word Satipatthana uh, according to the mysteries of Pali Sandhi which is the the rules that govern the joining of words. The compound satipatthana can be read in two ways. It can be read as sati upatana and sati patana. 
Um, if we read it as sati upatana, it's the activity of being mindful. It's the activity of remembering to be present. Uh, and the second way, satipatthana, is what is remembered as being present. So it's what we remember. So you've got the activity itself, satipatthana, and you've got what it is that we remember, which is satipatthana. The um, traditional Theravada favoured this second reading and they read it as Satipatthana and that's why in the old translations Satipatthana is invariably translated as something like the foundations of mindfulness so if you've been around these traps for a long time you, you would know Satipatthana as something like the foundations of mindfulness but you notice that you might notice that these new newfangled translations are coming in like the establishments of mindfulness or the applications of mindfulness. <coughs> well, these newer translations are coming from uh, taking Satipatthana as being Satipatthana. And, in fact, this is what the Mahayana have always done. In Mahayana Buddhism, they've always taken it as Satipatthana. And modern um, scholars have decided that in this case, the Mahayana got it right, the Theravada got it wrong, and even the Theravadans are accepting this, people like Bhikkhu Bodhi, and so he translates Satipatthana now as the establishments of mindfulness. Um, so what... Um, the, we talked about how the basic activity here is anupassana, tracking experience over time, um, creating this continuity of mindfulness, which we can recognise as the felt continuity of awareness. It's like I can feel that continuity. And it's quite a powerful experience, if, if we can maintain it for any period of time. Um, so we have sati upatana is the trackings, the doing the tracking. The satipatthana is what it is that we are tracking. And tonight we're going to look in, into this second aspect. We're going to look at what it is that we are tracking. And there are four aspects of experience that we're tracking. Body, feeling, heart, mind, and phenomena. So the first one, body, this is um, kaya. Um, now as we've been talking about in terms of our relationship to body um, the Dharma is a first person discourse this is one thing that is really important to get in order to understand what, what the Buddha is talking about when the Buddha talks about for example the world he's not talking about the objectively studied planet that spins on its axis and orbits around the sun. He's talking about this, that we experience. Uh, so it's a first-person... Um, Dharma is a first-person discourse, not a third-person discourse. And this creates confusion in our culture because for us, if knowledge is to be reliable and useful, well, it has to be scientific. 
If it's not science, well, it's just subjective, hippie claptrap. Can't really rely on it, can't trust it. And so right from the mid-19th century, there's been this, uh, uh, this Buddhist project to present Buddhism as some kind of science, mind science. And it, this, this movement is strong today. As, as you know, the Dalai Lama is very much into it. And it's basically a PR strategy to make Buddhism respectable among a certain strata of the population. Uh, but the Buddha did not teach science. They did not teach? Science. So, for example, the Buddha believed, as we mentioned before, that the earth is flat. It consists of four great continents, one to the north, one to the south, one to the east, one to the west. In the middle of these four continents is an enormous mountain, which makes Everest look like a foothill. There are devas who live on this mountain, and if you're looking for the heavens, you climb the mountain and you keep going. These four continents and the great Mount Maru are surrounded by the great ocean, and the great ocean is held by the great wind that blows around it and presumably under it. In other words, if you want to study geography, you do not go to the Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) And when people make this, create this, um, uh, fail to make this distinction between first person and third person, they do get confused. And I can remember I spent some time in a study monastery in um, northern Thailand when I was a monk. And most of the inhabitants were um, young Thai novices so these are basically teenage boys and it was a school they were studying the Burmese um, monastic school curriculum Uh, it was the the, uh, the one monastery in Thailand that actually taught this curriculum and one day in the afternoon chores session where I'm sweeping the grounds and a friend of mine came up with a young seminarian. Seminarian, this guy, this kid spoke no English. Uh, but my friend spoke some English and I spoke some Thai, so we, we communicated. And they come up and he says, this seminarian has a question for you. And I said, oh, sure. Uh, ask away, what is it? And so my friend turns to the seminarian and he goes blah 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 in Thai and the seminarian goes blah 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 in Thai and my friend turns to me and he says is the world round or flat? (laughs) I thought about this and I said round and this was explained to the seminarian and he looked agitated and he goes blah 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 back and my friend turns to me and he says prove it So I thought about this, and I said, photographs. I have seen photographs. People have been up there, they've aimed a camera, they've taken pictures, and it is round. So this is explained to the seminarian. And he looked even more agitated and walked off without a word. Now, the thing is, this kid was, he he was not getting any secular education. He was studying a medieval Burmese monastic curriculum in which the world is as the Buddha describes it. 
but he had heard rumours coming through the grapevine. <laughs> and then he discovers that it's wrong. And I, I've often wondered what happened to him. What happened to his crisis of faith? How did he reconcile that? But the, the problem is the expectation that it's supposed to be science. It's not. Uh, so um, when the Buddha says body, he's not talking about this in the way that a doctor would talk about it. He's talking about my experience of the body. When he's talking about the world, he's talking about my experience of the world. And that experience is mediated through the six senses. So humans live in a particular world created or mediated by the six senses. Um, a plant lives in a different world. Um, a cat lives in a different world, closer to ours than a plant, but still different. A fly lives in a different world than the world we live in. Um, so body here does not uh, refers to my first person experience of this body within a physical world. A body for the Buddha means uh, in, the, in the broad sense covers the five physical senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So body, for our purposes, refers to the entire experienced physical universe. Everything experienced through the five physical <coughs> senses. Um, and of course, we, the practice begins with body, it begins with the physicality of experience. And all the way through this practice, it's like we keep coming back to the fact of the body. Uh, we keep escaping into a world created by, defined by mind, uh, and we put our reality there, but the job is again and again and again and again, come back to this, what does this, this feel like? What is it? What's the experience of it? Um, so we go, it goes all the way from opening up to the universe, seeing, hearing, etc., um, down to um, uh, the sense of the, of the whole body, down to the minute details of physical sensation. Now, of the five physical senses, the last one is body in the narrow sense of sensitivity to touch. Each of the senses is a sensitivity. And again, again, when the Buddha says, for example, the ear, he doesn't, he's not referring to this physical organ like a doctor would. He's referring to sensitivity to sound. And this sensitivity is located in a particular part of the body. But he's not talking about the ear in a third person sense. He's talking about sensitive, the fact of sensitivity to sound. Uh, all a lot of meditation methods emphasize, well, emphasize the body, but in particular the fifth sense field, sensitivity to touch. Um, that's of particular importance because as a meditation object, 
sensitivity to touch has two major advantages and both of them are linked to the clarity of contact. Uh, first of all, a body, and this, of course, um, is actually all um, the five physical senses, but particularly the fifth. Body is now. It's just bleeding obvious that physical sensation is in the present. Thoughts and fantasies, where we usually live, they exist in time. It makes sense to remember the past. It makes sense to plan for the future in the mind. The body does not remember the past. It does not anticipate the future. It is now. A sensation, which is the only expression, the only language of body is always now. So I can be completely caught up in some incredibly important reflection on past or future and I'm so caught up in it that I don't notice the rock in front of me my foot hits the rock I come crashing to the earth and when this happens do I lie there continuing to fantasise about past and future? No. I'm right here, right now. And of course, this is why the Sidals love it when meditators report pain. <laughs> so, when does pain occur? I think it, it occurs usually about 10 minutes ago. No, it always happens now. So, the body is radically simple and radically present. <clears throat> so, every time. I ground my awareness in body, I'm grounding it in the present, automatically, just by doing that. And secondly, a body, this fifth physical um, sensitivity, is, is clear. We talked about um, contact and, and sensing. When we talked about the senses as um, um, faculties, remember restraining the senses, we saw how the senses will go out to engage in the world. They're active. These are. This is the sense as an indria, as a a leading out. But there's also a way in which we can look at the senses in terms of a receptivity. Something strikes the sensitivity. So sound strikes the hearing sensitivity. Light strikes the seeing sensitivity, and so on. And this impact is passa, contact, literally touch. So we are touched by the sense uh, contact. Um, and the tradition, later tradition, says the touch of seeing, hearing, spelling and tasting uh, upon their respective sensitivities is like cotton striking cotton. The touch of a tactile sensation striking the body sensitivity is like a hammer hitting an anvil. Whammo! It's strong and it's clear. So if I want to develop mindfulness, and the tradition says, look, uh, one of the ways which, in, one of the things which encourages the arising of mindfulness is a clear perception. 
where would I go looking for a clear perception? Here. It's the obvious place. So this is why the body is so important in meditation practices. So first we have body, then we have feeling, <coughs> which we've spoken um, about a great deal, so we just got to have a brief look at it. Uh, as we said, it's like it's the affective or hedonic aspect of experience, and we can can compare it to the flavour of the sense object. Uh, but its characteristic is what Vedana is what moves us. It's what provokes a response. So we are struck by sense data. And in that impact, in that contact, there is a response. The chitta is moved in some way. That movement, and what stimulates that movement, is the vedana, is the feeling. So this is the whole realm of affect. Um, and the three basic movements of the mind, as we've talked about, attraction, the movement of the mind towards the sense object, to hold on to it. I like this. Aversion, the movement of the way of the mind away from the sense object. I don't want this, or even I'm going to hit it over the head to get rid of it. And the third one, the third third flavour is, haven't even noticed it, don't know. Or if I notice it, I'm confused. I don't know what to do about it. Should I hold on to it? Should I reject it? Should I hold, reject, hold, reject? Doubt and confusion. Um, so this second Satipatthana expands the practice to tracking our response to the experience it's not just the experience itself it now includes how we respond to the experience what does the, the mind the, the chitta do in response so it's all about seeing that we are moved and how we are moved. And this takes us into the realm of ethics. In other words, how we live. Uh, here, for our, these purposes, um, ethics is, can be seen as our response to the universal given question of how should I live? Each of us has this, is faced with this question. What do I do with my life? Um, how do I live? And over the years, each of us has produced an answer to that question, which is how we in fact live, and all the choices that we've made to create that construct. This whole project begins with Vedana, because that Vedana is the realm of that movement, that um, uh, determination, this in, the inevitability of reaching out. Yes, I'll definitely hold that one. No, I'll definitely reject this other one. I'll just ignore this other stuff because it's not worth paying attention to. So in Vedana, we enter into what we could call the realm of ethical sensitivity. We start to become sensitive to the things that create the way that we live. 
Uh, and this is, is something that we do not find in the first Satipatthana, in body. Um, there's, there's no ethical sensitivity in the first Satipatthana. If you have any doubts about this, just study the sports pages. <laughs> it's particularly rugby league players. And the, the well, the, you know, it's the constant series of entertaining scandals that sports stars manage to get themselves into. And after you're, you're, you're reading about someone whose body intelligence is very, very highly developed, um, especially in team sports, because um, the, in team sports, the people who are really admired are not just the ones who have this particular set of skills that you require for that game, but the people who can know how to read a game. And in, in the chaos, they seem to have this intuitive sense of what the other team, not simply what the other team is doing, but what they will be doing in the near future. The, the ability to anticipate that the ball, which is currently over there, will be over here within three seconds, and therefore right now, head in this direction, and here I am. And and so on. The, and when you, if you follow a team sport and you watch these sorts of things, these are the magic moments when suddenly it all comes together, and it's like this group intelligence. It's just wham! It's amazing. So people can develop a great deal of intelligence relating to the body, but ethically be completely stupid, totally. And you see, also of course, um, perhaps. For this audience, this is a bit more controversial. It's one thing to put the boot into rugby league. It's another thing entirely to mention that you see the same thing in the world of yoga, where you find people who have an, an acute physical sensitivity and they put their body in, in any position and move any little bit of it. And yet, in their ordinary lives, it's like ethically thick as two short planks. The... Um, and from a meditator's point of view, you can develop an acute sensitivity to such things as the rising and falling of the abdomen, if you're a classical Mahasi Walla, and again, make absolutely no difference whatsoever in the way that you live. Or I should say, we. Um, you can, we can master a meditation technique based upon body, and it might have zero effect on the way that we live. Where the, that happens is in Vedana. That's where this begins. Seeing that we are moved and how we are moved and what is it that moves us and what's the result of that movement. So something happens and I reach out and I hold and I don't even notice until I'm already holding But to see that movement, ah, when I hold like this, I usually end up regretting it sometime down the track. So maybe I should think about some alternative strategy here. And then we start to see um, 
changes in how we live. So this brings us to the third Saripatthana Chitta. Um, usually translated as mind, but that um, can easily give the wrong idea. The word I find the word mind way too cognitive. Uh, I was one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism and Buddhist practice is that it was all about the mind. And being when I was young, very miserable and very intellectual, I could find refuge in mind. So I would find refuge in reading books, esoteric books. They could take me out of the world of my problems. I could hide away. And I could hide away in nice books about Buddhism. Because it's all up here. But that's good because Buddha says we're developing mind. And where is mind? Well, mind is up here, isn't it? And what do we do with mind? Well, we think. Isn't that what we do with mind? So I find mind is, is inadequate as a translation. Um, chitta covers the realm of what we would call the heart. So the realm of feeling. Um, if emotion, mood. One, I think, personally, the best translation for chitta would be soul. Soul. S-O-U-L. <laughs> You're looking at me very dubiously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not in the Christian theological sense. But in the original sense, in, in Aristotle's sense, the soul, like the ancient philo Greek philosophers would debate about the anima. Uh, I don't know, if that's Latin, isn't it? I don't know what the Greek one word was. But it gets translated into English as the soul. Um, that is, I think, would be the equivalent of citta. But with, when, with Christianity, you get, well, the, for the ancients, um, the human being was made up of essentially body and soul and then the Christians came along and they added a third dimension spirit that they put on top so you get this tripartite <coughs> thing where spirit becomes m most important and spirit <coughs> is completely non-physical uh, and it has to do with, um, with God and not much to do with tacky things like the body um, but for the Buddha um, citta and body are intimately entwined in fact you can't have one without the other if you have one you've got to have the other if there's a mind it has to have a body um, it's, it's necessarily part of a body if there's a body in other words Remember we're talking about experience. If there's the experience of body, there has to be mind. Because what's doing the experiencing? It's mind. Uh, and if there's mind, there has to be body. So I'm thinking about something, and the thinking is definitely mind. But where is the thinking taking place? Remember we played around with this? It's connected clearly in some way to body. 
if this body wouldn't be here or those thoughts would not be arising so for the Buddha body and mind are intimately intertwined um, Patrick you're not happy with the term heart mind yeah that's the usual one that I, I'd go for the compromise heart mind mm. and sometimes I'll translate it as heart because sometimes that seems to be the best context <clears throat> Um, and I guess sometimes is mind soul the problem with soul is you've got to explain it to everybody <laughs> so, <laughs> and some people wouldn't be convinced <laughs> heart mind is similarly um, accepted in, in our current language it's becoming accepted but I think we're learning it from the Buddha mm-hmm. I think this is part of the cultural interactions that's, that's going on in Chinese the word is nen mind? Well, in uh, Asian cultures, they don't have no problems about this mind being here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't separate heart and mind? No, that, that not like the Western European culture. There's not the same degree of separation. It seems to be uniquely European that mm-hmm. made this separation. Mm. Um, now citta is a key technical term in, in the Buddhist teaching and in subsequent Buddhist philosophy and depending on context it gets various definitions uh, in Satipatthana Sutta it's not given a precise definition it's, the meaning is more general it's basically used in a broad sense to indicate our general state how one is at this time so it's close to what we would call mood it's not quite mood, but it's quite close to that. It's like we have the, the routine greeting where you meet someone we say, how are you? And you could say that what we're asking about is the state of your chitta. So usually we say, I'm good. Um, are we doing that to reassure the person that we're not evil? <laughs> or are we doing it to reassure them that I'm not about to tell you the tragedy of my life because actually I feel really awful. Do you want to hear all about it? No, I don't. So, in other words, we basically evade the question. <laughs> but if you, if somebody asked you, how are you, and you actually, as a meditator, went into your chitta, felt your general state, how you are at this time, and then told them, you would be presenting your chitta. So... Um, chitta is very similar to Vedana um, you could say that chitta is how one feel, uh, how one is at this time while Vedana is how one feels at this time and they're very very close and in fact for practical purposes you, you wouldn't even distinguish them um, it's important with these technical terms um, they are precise but their precision is the precision of poetry not the precision of science uh, and so there's always room for disagreement and in particular from the meditator's point of view so I'm experiencing something is this Vedana or is it Chitta now it basically doesn't matter which one it is what matters is that we ha- that we can make sense of the experience that we can first of all develop the sensitivity so we experience 
at a degree of intimacy that we normally miss and that we understand, have some understanding of what this is and how it flows, how it works. So whether we label this particular experience as, oh, this is Vedana or this is Chitta, it really doesn't matter. Patrick, my understanding of Vedana is that it's specifically about, as you said, the hedonic dimension, sort of liking, not liking, mm. aspect. Yeah. Whereas to me, emotion is a much broader, more varied. Yeah. So if I feel anger, for example, in some way partakes of not liking, but it's, yeah. it's a very particular yeah. kind of not liking. Yeah. It's much more complex. Yes. There's actually no word in Pali that translates as emotion. It's not part of the Buddha's vocabulary. And um, it's one of those Mind Life Institute book, books that came out of those Mind Life Institute meetings about <coughs> is it destructive emotions. <coughs> uh, and somewhere in that book, I think page 300 and something, the Dalai Lama actually says, but by the way, there is no word in Tibetan that translates as emotion. And as far as he knows, there is no what he calls Buddhist language, quote-unquote, that has such a term. And certainly you don't, you don't find it in Pali. Why do you think that is? Is that because maybe the emotions are on the dimension of Vedna? It's, it's like these concepts... Somewhere. What these concepts do is they divide the world up in certain ways so that we can understand what's going on. And so they're very culturally conditioned. So if we go back to the ancient Greeks, they asked the question, what is it that distinguishes human beings from all other species? And in particular, what is it that makes us superior? And the answer they came up with was reason. Reason is the distinctively human characteristic of the what we would call the chitta. Now, if you ask, what's the enemy of reason? What could sabotage reason? Emotion. So you have this reason versus emotion categorization, which becomes very important in, in the European culture. Uh, whereas the Buddha is looking at things from a different angle. First of all, he's very precise in his language, and emotion is too general. So if I have, if I can recognize an emotion, if I can recognize, ah, I am in the grip of emotion X, in order to do that, I need a number of different things. I need, for a start, some kind of narrative in the mind, a story I'm telling myself and I'm believing. So let's say I am angry, and I can recognize that. I have to have a narrative in which someone did, did something or did do something, is doing something or will do something that they should not. Do you think, or would you not just recognise the constellation of, um, of body sensations from past experiences that equate to anger, for example? Um, then that'd just be a series of body sensations. There wouldn't be anger. Hmm. And you might then, actually, if you, if you say, oh, this feels like anger, watch the mind go into overdrive, heading for the filing cabinet, 
<laughs> pulling out be nasty things <laughs> people have done, riffling through. And, ah, this one. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so you've got that. You've got. It's also in the body. If there's any motion, there's, the body's being stirred up. As you point out, it's being stirred up in some way. So you have narrative, chitta, body, and of course you have vedana, and the vedana will either be pleasant or painful. To me, it makes no sense to talk about an emotion which the, and the vedana, the, the affective feel of it, is neither painful nor pleasant. Is either painful or it's pleasant, and usually strongly so. So, or even both, going boom, 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 boom between them. Um, as so, I've been assured by one crotchety old bachelor, love can also be painful and pleasant at the same time. So, um, and also with emotion, I don't think it makes sense to say that we are always in the grip of emotion. But we are always experiencing Vedana. So I think partly the Buddha avoids this term because it's too general. He, he, he divides things up into their component parts. And partly he does, doesn't come from this um, European heritage. For the Buddha, if he's looking at the human being, his major um, dichotomy that he's interested is not um, is this reason or emotion but is this kusala or akusala is it wholesome or unwholesome does it lead towards the cessation of dukkha or does it lead towards the cultivation of dukkha that's what he's interested in so that's the basic binary that you find if you look at um, if I'm, not, I'm not, I can't speak Latin but I, I believe the Latin uh, that emotion comes from refers to emove, yeah. which means to bring into action, mm. to make move, mm. which is similar to what we're talking about with Red about. Yeah. And what moves us. Mm. But the Buddha does talk about uh, ill will, for example, mm. but that could manifest in a number of the, the emotions we categorise, such as jealousy and um, as well as anger and uh, resentment, for example. Mm. So that, like the basic movement of attraction, the movement of the mind towards an object, mm-hmm. could be um, addictive lust at one end of the spectrum, and the highest ideals for humanity on the other, mm-hmm. and everything in between. So the whole range of things, which some of which are emotions and some of which are not, mm-hmm. would be covered over, and similarly with aversion. Um, whole range of moods and emotions and, and so on would be covered that would emerge out of that elemental movement so they're in a way more general so I mean more, more in general in the sense of elemental so getting out to the elemental quality of these things I think to the Greeks the emotion was also just like a category of like it's non-reason it's not reason. It's mm. a big category of things that aren't reason. Mm. It's not so, you know, refined. You know. Mm. Yeah. And this is one of the things when we when we read the Buddha is that we've got to accept the fact that he's coming from a different culture and he's reading things differently from the way that we do. 
and our tendency is just to read him in terms of our familiar cultural categories but when we do that we get him wrong we misunderstand what he's what he's actually saying another thing to think about is that uh, western culture doesn't have they don't have clear definitions of and science have clear definitions of uh, emotions but when it comes to states of mind such as peace or uh, even compassion there's arguments about whether that could be called an emotional body that they say well it's not really an emotion because it doesn't have these qualities and so on so it's interesting that, you know, variations in the way we understand what it means mm. even in western language we're not clear about it. Mm. Yeah. And you can see that in contemporary psychology, the incorporation of mindfulness yeah, yeah. and grappling with this whole new vocabulary. <coughs> with people trying to work out what, how to talk about it. I think English is pretty poor language in terms of trying to actually uh, describe nuances of heart and mind. It, it just doesn't have very many words. No. It's quite poor compared to um, Pali and Sanskrit um, anyway um, Chitta ah yes, uh, the essence of Chitta is awareness um, Vijnana um, and the Buddha compares this to clear transparent water so the mind that is purified is compared to a mountain lake where the water is quite clear, limpid and undisturbed unquote. so this is the, the kind of chitta that we're trying to cultivate when we do the practice and the Buddha says someone standing on the bank of such a lake could look into it and see the bottom of the lake along with the plants, rocks and pebbles at the bottom of the lake and the fish all swimming about uh, so the transparency of the chitta is something that we're, we're cultivating and the essence of the chitta is that transparency which here is compared to water which is clear and still uh, the Buddha also describes this essence of chitta as luminous pabhasara um, so the luminosity of the chitta we'll talk about and we, we talked about this in terms of it's like walking into a dark room and then switching on the lights everything is <coughs> luminous it, it appears in, in the light so this is the the essence of chitta this um, awareness, this clear awareness but this essence is um, disguised from us by the disturbances that enter into the chitta the kilesas um, kilesa is usually translated as defilement that's the traditional um, translation um, it comes kilesa comes from the ah, and except in you notice in Mahayana Buddhism they'll talk about it as afflictive emotions yeah. you come across that one now this, they're coming based on the Sanskrit, klesha and klesha can be kind of backtracked to kilesa or it can be taken to a different route meaning to afflict uh, when they when the, in the 
I've often seen afflictive emotions in um, English translations of particularly Tibetan works. But what they're doing is, first of all, they're adding the word emotion to make it culturally familiar. So if you drop that, klesha here are the afflictions. That's the way that the what afflicts, what pains the chitta. Or in the Pali, it's kilesa, and the tradition derives this word from the verb kilisati, to stick, to adhere. So the image is, let's say you have white cloth, and you, um, let's say you're, you're, you've got a, a new white shirt, and you're having a nice dinner, and you're a messy eater. And then at the end of the meal, as you're wiping the food from your face, you look down and you realise, whoops, I need to change this shirt. The shirt is defiled. (laughs) It is dirtied because something from outside the shirt, bits of food, are sticking to it. So um, kilisati is to stick, to adhere. So kilesa, usually translated as defilement, could also actually be translated as stuckness. It's quite interesting. What? Stuckness. Stuckness. So basically, for the, 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 you could say that the, one of the fundamental values of the Buddha is freedom. What gets in the way of freedom? It's when we get stuck. When I'm stuck, I'm not free. And this stuckness is kilesa. Um, Besna Wallace translated, I think it's the Sanskrit translation of klesha uh, from the word to distort. Mm. Kles means to distort. Mm. I think sometimes some people take from klesh or some people, and some people from klish. It's K-H-E-S-H-A, something like klesha. Yeah. <coughs> you could have klesh or klish. Um, this is the thing about Sanskrit, you can play with it. You've got a word, and you can say, well, I can derive this from this root, or that root, or the other root, and make something out of it. And we don't know whether, for some of these terms, the Buddha would have started at the root, and then created a technical term. But in other cases, there would have been this term, and then the commentator goes back to the root, depending on what meaning he or she wants to put on it, they just choose different roots. Yeah, I can derive this from this root. It gives it a much more interesting meaning. So there is this creativity with language in the Indian traditions. They play with language. Uh, and, uh, it's, and like in the commentaries, the Theravada commentaries, I, I would guess the same as in the Sanskrit. Say, so Buddha Gosa would say, what does this mean? And he'd give a list of different meanings playing with the word in different ways. Well, you can take it as, as coming from this, in which case it means that, or you could take it as coming from this, and then you get this other meaning, or you could take it this way and get this other one, and it just goes down a list. And the thing is, it means all of them. And if you want to play with it some more, it can have more meanings. You play with it. This is part of the, the poetry of it. Um, if, they, if the chitter is disturbed, this is compared to water that's mixed up with colour, with dye, for example, so you can't, it's not transparent, you can't see into it, or heated until it's boiling. Anybody had a boiling chitta? (laughs) Or covered with algae, clogged, 
sticky or stirred up by the wind or muddy um, and these are of course all images for the, for the hindrances so, so the natural transparency of the water is lost but you notice that the natural state of the water is transparent and this is the, the basic insight from which you get um, in the in East Asian Buddhism the idea of Buddha nature where this comes from now um, so the investigation of citta is, is fundamental to this practice uh, and how, <coughs> um, how do we well um, tracking the chitta develops a sensitivity to the state of our heart, of our heart-mind. Um, we become present to our inner state, whatever that is. Uh, and this entails knowing how we feel, Vedana, therefore how we are moved to respond, the, the, to act, the choices that we make, Shaitana, that we talked about before, Sankhara, the, the constructions um, and when we're talking about what we do how we are moved to act then we're talking about karma action, vipaka it's ripening the results of that and takes us into how we create the way that we live and all of this is accessible through citta so citta is the, the key um, when the Buddha talks about um, bondage what is it that is bound it's the citta mm. when he talks about liberation what is it that is liberated it's the citta so the tracking of the citta is you could say the, the fundamental aspect of the practice um, part of it is for example uh, a really important part is becoming aware of the difference between the kusala and the akusala, the wholesome and the unwholesome. The, the wholesome is a, a response, an action which is um, pleasant within itself and leads to a good result. Good in the sense of lessening of dukkha, leading away from dukkha. Something which is unwholesome, akusala, is, un, is painful within itself in its nature and it leads to a painful result and learning to distinguish those is, is uh, really central and of course it's not at all obvious uh, if you look at the human condition today and realise that this is the result of tens of thousands of years of people trying to make the world a better place and <laughs> This is what we've got. <laughs> so delusion is very powerful. And we can pursue something our life long, convinced this is what's going to make me happy, only to discover that it doesn't. And, of course, in terms of um, the pursuit of economic growth, consumerism, etc., um, this is both very obvious, but somehow... Everybody who has any kind of power in this society seems to be totally blind to it. So we can't 
take for granted that we know the difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome, the skillful and the unskillful. You, get, you notice you get these two different translations. Chrysala, sometimes <coughs> translated wholesome, sometimes skillful. Akrysala, sometimes translated unwholesome, sometimes unskillful. Wholesome, unwholesome points to the quality of that phenomenon itself. Uh, and skillful, unskillful points to the results of it. So it's two different sides, but they include both. Um, another aspect of tracking the chitta is seeing how we construct ourselves. We're constantly selfing, constructing a self. And when we become sensitive to the movements of the chitta, we can see just how relentless this is. And then we can get a sense of, is this kusala or is this akusala? Does it lead to greater freedom and ease, or does it lead to greater bondage and pain? And once we see that, then we can start to make different choices. Now, if we ask, well, how do we gain access into the jitta? Uh, we cannot think our way in. No amount of reading books is going to help. And we cannot force our way in. A heroic effort does not necessarily help us. We feel our way in. But equally, with the first satipatthana, the body, how do we become get get the awareness right into the body? How do we become fully embodied? We can't think our way in. We can't force our way in. We feel our way in. So when we look at these three satipatthanas, first of all, they cover the entirety of human experience. And you can see them laid out in terms of gross to subtle. The most obvious one is the body. More subtle than that is this quality of feeling, of affect, and more subtle still are the movements of the chitta, the heart-mind. So it's a movement from the gross to the subtle. Another way of looking at it, a non-linear way of looking at it, is you, it's like a, like a triangle. At the apex is Vedana, it's feeling. And one side is body, and the other side is chitta. Because how do I gain access into the body? How do, we, how do I become intimate with body? Through Vedana. How do I become intimate with chitta? Through Vedana. Uh, you could say that Vedana represents intimacy itself. Because it's so close to contact, the immediacy of experience. So that's another way of looking at the structure of the three Satipatthanas. In any event, these three Satipatthanas cover everything, all aspects of human experience, which leads us wondering, why then is there a fourth? Since we've already got every base covered. And we'll look at that tomorrow night. Any questions or comments? How is thinking covered by Chitta? That's one of the activities of Chitta. This is not. This is a cognitive activity. So when you look at chitta, you can see aspects of it are cognitive, and aspects of it are affective. So in, the, in the standards, you know, the, the exercises in the Satipatthana talking about chitta is like 
<coughs> with lust, without lust. Mm. And yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. And it's, how how does that describe you know that that very cognitive activity that we all know and are frustrated with? Mm. He doesn't uh, specifically mention thinking in Satipatthana Sutta. Mm-hmm. Um, which could come as a great surprise because again it's a template I don't think it's meant to be absolutely exhaustive it's kind of just setting up a basic template and saying okay have a look around here and have a look around there so we talked about emotions which we certainly covered by Chitta but once you look at emotion you certainly come across thinking mm. it's part of the package so it's not Exhaustive in the sense that he's trying to cover every possible experience. It's interesting. I find what I find interesting is that when the Buddha talks about thinking specifically, um, and in particular, for example, as a distraction, mm-hmm. the term that he uses is vitika vichara. <coughs> now, when he's talking about the development of jhana, the absorption, the first two jhana factors are vitika vichara, mm-hmm. exactly the same word. And you can get a sense of where he's coming from because, again, the Buddha is interested in process. He's always interested in the processes of of body and mind. If you think about the meditation process, what do we do with the um, awareness? We send it to the meditation object. Initial application, vitika. Boom. Go there. Go there. Go there. Go there go there. When we get some um, momentum, we have vichara, sustained application. Okay. We follow it. If you think about the process of thinking, you've talked about the mind is throwing up cognitions, like sparks from a fire. We send the awareness there. Bang! Vitika, initial application. We grab one of those and we turn it into a story. It's sustained application. It's actually the same process. I've heard Vitaka and Vichara describe, Rupert Gethin does this, so you pick up some the brass mm. pot, Vitaka, and then you polish it, you start polishing it. Yeah, that's, that's, one, of, that's one of Buddha Gosa's images. Is it? Okay, well, yeah. uh, another one is like, it's, a, it's like a, 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 a flower that has pollen, and the bee is attracted to it. And the bee, the bee comes to the part of the flower, that's Vitaka, and then he's hovering around. That's Vichara. Another image is it's like an archer shooting at a target. Aim, fire. Aim, fire. That's Vitaka. And then as he gets more and more skilled, it's just bang, 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 bang. Hitting the target every time, that's Vichara. Um, so the puncher is um, another way that the Buddha talks about thinking. Uh, a particular style of thinking. Yeah, like the mental preparation. Yeah. Thing, which you would find, if you wanted to look at Chitta and uh, Pasana, mindfulness of Chitta, when you see a uh, mind cut, you know, driven by lust or a mind not driven by lust, something like that, you would find that Papancha or it's either Papancha or it's either um, right thought or something like that. So it would be cut in that respect. Again, it's covered in the territory even if it's not specifically mentioned Um, these days I translate Papancha as complication (laughs) (laughs) keep it simple don't complicate it
not just good by itself. It's a great yeah, it's a great word. Any other questions or comments? I have a question. It's, I'm not exactly clear what it is, but at the beginning of the talk, you were talking about the different sense modalities mm. as sensitivities, including the sensitivity of touch. And um, you were talking about the body as the experienced world mm. in some sense. Um, what I'm wondering is whether, you know, if I think, if I talk about um, a sense modality like seeing or hearing, I kind of think of it as the um, capacity for those activities, mm. but not what is seen or what is heard. Mm. Um, there was just something about the way you said it that made me wonder whether, in the idea of, I suppose, well, in my experience, world includes what is sensed. But does the body also... Is that also a part of the body? I mean, like the world that I experience? Mm -hmm. Well, part of the world that we experience is the fact that there's a tangible quality. Potaba, I think, is the Pali, which has to do with... comes from Pasa. Right. So that, the fact that the contactable. contactable, the solidity of the world yeah. is, is, is that, that fifth field. So there's something about seeing and hearing which not, it's not really solid. Like I, I can see, I can have an illusion. I can see something that isn't there. But this, the solidity, um, has a different quality to it. Sound, uh, taste, etc. Not to the organ, that part. It's yes, the it's no, it's part of it, so. body, body in the broad sense, all five physical senses. <coughs> body in the narrow sense, sensitivity to touch. Yeah. Is that it? I suppose um, I've always been a bit curious about the bit of experiencing body as body. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I get more of a sense of that, but. I mean, are we saying? Are you saying that body is everything that we can experience with the six senses? Five senses. With the five physical senses. Yes. Everything that. Can but all those senses are mediated through the mind. Yes. So mano is the sixth sense. Mano is one of the is a word cognate with our mind. In Sanskrit, it's manas. In Pali, it's mano. Um, and mano, what the, the, the Buddha says that. If you look at the five physical senses, each of them are completely separate streams. Yeah. So the eyes don't hear, the ears don't see. So you've got one type of sense data um, in five separate parallel streams. Yeah. Then you get mano, that has its own unique stream of sense data, everything created by the mind, but it also receives the other five streams, and it is the coordinating factor. 
So it puts them yes. together to yeah. create a coherent world. <coughs> I get that. I think what I'm asking is, So, so the expression that I used was the entire experienced physical universe yes. is Kaya. And one practical application of this is not shutting off the physical senses when you practice, yes. but treating them as aspects of the practice. So let's say the, the whole idea of, you see people in retreats, often eyes down, they don't make any kind of contact, etc. Now, that's a very good strategy if you want to maximise concentration. But if you're just working on mindfulness, you can also have the eyes up and visually engaging. But it'll be harder to develop concentration. Because you're getting all this stimulus. Yeah. You're increasing the stimulus. Yes. Um, but equally, when you've got very strong mindfulness, it doesn't excite. For example... Um, when I started doing Zen back in the late 70s we were instructed to sit with the eyes open we used to sit facing a wall with the eyes open so you're looking at this neutral thing in front of you with your eyes open uh, and I found it fantastic because my I had strong tendency to, towards um, um, sloth and torpor when I would meditate and my favourite meditation spot was in the first, in this house in, in Sydney, which was had the first meditation hall of the then Sydney Zen group, which is now the Sydney Zen Centre. And it was, a living, it was the living room, and there was, at the front of the room, there's some kind of fireplace arrangement. And I used to sit on the right-hand side of that. This is my favourite spot in the corner, because just on the wall here, there was a light which aimed itself directly at that wall. So I would sit here, eyes open. The wall was painted a light colour and the light would go bang, wham, straight into my eyes. And it kept me awake. And I loved it. <laughs> and so I, I really got into the habit of sitting with the eyes open. And when I w- moved to Tadavada, yes. I brought that with me. Yes. And I can remember doing things like, for example, I'd be sitting in the, in the meditation hall at Chemia Yekta, um, men's hall up above and there's this enormous there's this big stage and it's like a theatre this enormous image of the Buddha teaching the five teaching the first discourse so you've got the five ascetics and you've got the sun the moon you've got the deers and the forest and so on and then on that top stage were the monks they sit up there and the main doorway was over there and people were constantly coming and going going onto the stage sitting there arranging themselves sit there for a while get up and walk out and people coming in, lay people, laymen coming in, sitting down and so on. And I was sitting there with my eyes wide open. And all of this was taking place in my visual consciousness. And what I was um, naming mentally was seeing. Seeing, but it suddenly hit me as being kind of meditationally ironic. 
that what I was naming wasn't all this, which I had no response to at all. It was my, I was, it was my thinking. Mm. I was having visual thoughts, and I was naming those as see, see, because that's where my attention was. I could see every detail in front of me, movement, stuff going on, but there was no response to it, no reaction to it whatsoever. And it was when I was noting seeing, seeing for the mind, for the thoughts, the mental images, that really struck me. You know, this this it's quite quite powerful. So is this partly what the Buddha's referring to when he talks about the body as body internally or externally? Mm. So I could say there's a difference between I can detect the difference between physical sensations that are internal and contact of my mm-hmm. body with the chair, for example. Yep. I get a sense of it, for example, if I'm doing a stretch and I do a long stretch, when I do my own retreat and I do the stretches and I'm in no hurry whatsoever so I can spend a long time in a single stretch and I keep noting the sensation and the sense of the posture drops away. You know, the sense that I'm in this particular posture doing the stretch goes and all there is is sensation. That's all. And when that happens then it gives way. But it's just air element movement along with the sensation. Um, people who use hearing as meditation object, they'll often say, at first, I know what I'm hearing. So I, that's the train, that's the bird, that's, a, that's the highway. And then later on, I don't know what I'm hearing. That perception just drops away. It's just sound. It's not the sound of anything at all. It's just sound. So that's the perception that it's gone. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. yeah. So it's just sound as sound. And then further on, it just becomes vibration. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're, it's like deconstructing the physical world. The physicality is still happening, but the world that it normally creates is being deconstructed. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I remember having that sound of sound idea mm-hmm. presented to me, and it was um, uh, it seemed to me that that's where you should be um, aiming, which led to a great deal of difficulty for me. But you're saying that that's it may or may not happen, sort of. Mm. Yeah, it depends how. You don't necessarily have to aim for perception to drop away, although it is a construction. All you've got to do is listen. The perception will drop away. This is all, always a natural process. and Sometimes you do get a mistake, and sometimes this mistake can creep in with the way that the project is presented to you. That you think, I've got to get to there. But no, I, really the project is this is the direction I'm heading. And so that's a very different project. And you notice that that second project, aim in that direction, is all about process. And again, the Buddha is all about process. If if you take care of the process, the result will take care of itself. If you nurture the plant, you will get the harvest. If you 
you know, growing, growing apples. You don't go out there every day and shake the tree. When the hell are you going to produce an apple? <laughs> well, you could, but it, it, it wouldn't help. You just look after the tree. <laughs> and the apple comes. Yeah, so long as it's an apple tree. And so long as it's growing in an area where apple trees flourish. And the project is being um, in, interested in, in process, that, yeah. that, uh, that investigation of Darwinism. Mm. Yeah. What is the process happening here? How does it work? Yeah. And how does that fit in with the um, this whole new thing that I'm trying to work, trying not to do of, <laughs> of open awareness? How do you be interested in the process of open awareness without doing interested in the process? Um. <laughs> Probably you just not worry about that okay. as being altogether too complicated and just be interested in uh, whenever you find yourself doing something with the process. So there I go interfering with it again. Just relax. Oh, there I go doing something. No, just relax. Oh, there I go trying not to do something. Just relax. Um, process is very... Fascinating, you know. It, it's driven my pro- my whole practice for years. The, the actual interest in the process, you know, whatever process I might be looking at. So, yeah, I'm back to floundering. I guess. <laughs> Just, yeah. So it's, it's being attuned to the, in part, it's being attuned to the quality of effort. Right. Trying, trying. Don't try. Just let it happen. Jane's mm. clarification around the Ukiah and you know the, the five physical th- senses and phenomena that are coming from the outside really being the body. Reminds me of that one about you know within this fathom long body, mm. I experience the whole universe or something yeah. like that. It's the world, the arising of the world, mm. the cessation of the world, mm. and the path leading to the cessation it's of true. the world. Mm. Yeah. Doesn't the whole world change with the chitta? Mm. When the chitta changes, my my world changes. It's a completely different world. Yeah. The trees are different. The sky is different. Mm. So the world is a lot more malleable than we take it to be. Mm. Which is one thing we discover. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.